two of them, but I'm going I'm to have us read them in the middle of the sermon. Uh, so I, I won't ask you necessarily to turn to this, but uh, our basic starting point for this sermon is, of course, Exodus 20, verse 13, where we read, You shall not kill. Let's, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, uh, we come before you this evening um, grateful for your word, the, the light that it shines on us, and we want you to receive all the glory, and we want to bring praise with our very lives to your name as we have sung. And so we do ask that uh, in this time you would, you would bless your word even this short sentence that we shall not kill, we ask that you would bless that and the rest of the reading of scripture that we will do and bless the preaching of your word. Father, transform us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we uh, think about the, the sixth commandment, um, and I realize we're, we're still out of order, right? We haven't done the fifth commandment, We'll get there, but I think I want to spend two weeks on the fifth commandment back to back, and so I decided to wait on that. Uh, The sixth commandment was on my mind this week, and as we think about the sixth commandment, you shall not kill or you shall not murder. Uh, Obviously, the issue of life is very important. How we think of life is essential to how we keep or do not keep the sixth commandment. And uh, our culture ha- has just flipped that question of life on its head. Our culture likes to, to flip it on its head and look at the whole issue of life backwards or upside down. And sadly, so many uh, voices in Christianity are, are echoing that, flipping of things upside down, looking at life uh, backwards in our own day and age. And they're abundant uh, examples we could pick. I've just picked a couple of really obvious ones, at least seem obvious to me of our culture doing this. When when we talk about the punishment of murder, what does our culture do in terms of talking about life and and victimization and murder? Well, the the victim, who's the victim when we talk about the punishment of murder in our country now? Who, Who do people want to emphasize as potentially a victim when the murderer, right? We, we talk about the punishment of them. There's this gruesome, horrific event that takes place in the community. And within six months, uh, the, the person's up for trial. And what are you talking about? You're talking about, uh, what the judgment will be against that murderer. And if it's too harsh of a judgment, well, that what a victim, Right, this this poor guy. He he only murdered a family in the night, gruesomely. But he's been in jail for ten years now. How could they not let him out on bail? He's been such a nice guy while he's in prison. Right, the the victim becomes the murderer, not the dead person, and not the family or the loved ones of the dead person. We we flip the issue of life upside down, the life that matters ceases to be the life taken or the lives that have been ruined and it becomes the life that is being punished. 
He's the victim and he's the life that we care about. And therefore, in our our culture, the idea is to not punish, but to rehabilitate. And rehabilitating requires of us, even if no one's going to say it, what it requires of us is that we have an idea that the best thing to do with the dead is to forget them. And so a, a family who has had someone killed, um, my, uh, my brother-in-law's extended family, there was a police officer shot down just as he went up to do a basic uh, stop of a car, the bang, dead. And every five years, the, the widow and the children have to go and plead for the killer to remain in prison. Video cameras, no question marks what happened. There it is, every five years, and they were told, the year you don't show up, he's, on, he's out, right? That, that's, that's the way it works. Forget about the dead. Don't be obnoxious. Don't be that mean person who's going to leave this person with, with no life now in prison. <clears throat> we, we flip it on its head. Another obvious one has to do with um, how in our culture, the one who chooses to misuse God's gift of sexuality is the victim. The person who misuses God's uh, gift of sexuality is the victim. And if they aren't given the opportunity to rid themselves of that baby that their actions created, uh, rid themselves of that baby and regain their freedom in life, then uh, they are a victim, right? They're a victim of you not letting them free their lives back up. They, they chose this action. I know there's an exception to that where it wasn't the choice of the woman to get pregnant. I, I do, but we, in our culture, we tend to use the exception, the rape, to argue for how every baby's abortion should be argued. I'll get back to the rape one, too, in a moment, how God's word would deal with it. But but we have this attitude, we flip it, right? And, and so, therefore, you kill this new life. You forget about the baby to free up the future for your own goals because your life and how you want to live it is more important than the life that's being taken. We, we flip we flip the issue of life upside down. Let, let, let's think about the instance of rape even for a moment. How do we regard... Uh, that kind of situation in our society, the rapist is guarded and the infant is killed. What does God's word do? Does it ignore the woman? Does it deny that she has been a, a victim? No, of, of course it doesn't. But in God's word, the, the woman remains the victim. The rapist is uh, punished not guarded, the baby is guarded, not murdered, and the woman is cared for. The Christian community is to come alongside and care for the widow and the orphan, and that would include in that category those who uh, have been the, the, the victims of something horrific like this, right? So, so our culture has flipped the whole thing. The baby uh, gets killed instead of the rapist, the, the, and the woman usually is just good luck. Uh, 
we, we flip the issue of life upside down. God takes it very, very seriously. He says, you shall not kill. And then he gives very clear demands for how they in the Old Testament were to deal with this. And no less clear for how the government in our day and age ought to deal with these things. He's written it on the heart. He's made it clear. He's given a command for all of time. We'll look at that. Um, But in all of this, uh, where the culture puts justice on the back seat and niceness in the forefront, be nice, be nice to the, the bad person. Scripture puts justice first and God says, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill. Why does God care so much? Why does he want us to care so much about life? I like how Joseph Moorcraft answers that question. Why does God care so much? Why does he want us to care so much? Precisely because murder is a, or killing is a direct assault on God himself. What do you think of that? That murder is a direct assault on God himself. I want us to think about the scriptures to consider whether that's true or to consider why that's true. So first, murder is an assault on God himself. And that's not confusing the creature for the creator. The victim, the murdered person is not a deity. I'm not suggesting that. Warcraft's not suggesting that in the quote I just read. What we're saying is that the act itself is an act of aggression against God himself. It's a rebellion not only against the creator taking a life that he breathed out. Think of that. We read that God breathed life into Adam. And we're told later in scripture that the Holy Spirit is the life-giving spirit. Every human being has the life, the breath of God breathed into them at birth. And so it's an attack on the creator. But more than that, it is a brutal defacing of his image. God created man, male and female. We read this last Sunday night. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. It's a defacing of the image of God. So the first of the two longer texts I want to read tonight is Genesis 9, verses 1 through 7. Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. By the way, both of these two uh, texts I'm going to have us read in this sermon, I think we looked at uh, in this very same series about a year ago when we looked at image of God. But you can't think about the sixth commandment without reflecting on the image of God. And so we're, we're going to look at these same two texts again. Genesis 9, 1 through 7. After the flood, we read, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth on every bird of the air, on all that move on earth and on all the fish of the sea. 
They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for you, for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. It's a lot in that passage, isn't there? Uh, first, God establishes that Noah and his sons, that, that humanity post-flood, are in the same uh, stewardship position that Adam had been in although still in the fallen wilderness, that we have dominion over the creatures. And he gives uh, authorized permission. You are to be in charge of the creatures and you're allowed to eat the creatures. But then God makes this point. The creatures are not allowed to eat you. Not that any of us want to be eaten, but the, the, the creature is not to be just let go if they destroy a human. Why? Because it's not the equivalent. A human killing an animal for food is not the equivalent of an animal ravaging and destroying and devouring the image bearer. There's a distinction there. So when we talk about murder, our culture is absolutely wrong when people say that eating meat is murder. Because murder, in God's own definition, is of the image bearer, and that's what makes it impermissible. Now, there are times when we might kill animals in a way that God would not approve of, not for eating, but just uh, violence and so forth, and that wouldn't of itself be a sin, but it's not the same as the murder of an image bearer. And so the animal that destroys a human life is to be put to death. And there are places in the rest of the Old Testament, especially in regard to to Israel's laws uh, for the Old Testament age, where you see directly how this is to be played out. But then God takes it another step. He will also require it from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. And then here's the command from God. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. We'll come back to that in a moment. But then there's the reason. Why? Why does God care so much? For in the image of God, he made man. Right from God himself, we're told that the act of murder of a human by another human is an act of violence and aggression against God himself. An astonishing and rather frightening thing. Especially when we then reflect on what Christ says about murder. Um, we, we all, here's another thing we, we do in our culture a lot. If you ask someone if they think they're a good person, 
One of the things that we all, we all, not just non-Christians, believers too often, we, we think, well, yeah, but I've never murdered anyone, right? I, I might not be the best person, but I've never murdered anyone. And yet uh, we have statements like, if looks could kill. And, and for Christians, we Christians especially, this should be a, a frightening contemplation because we remember what Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount. That the one who hates his brother in his heart has committed murder in his heart. That's a powerful thing. Maybe what we could, we could say about Christ's thought there is that we have the premeditation and just haven't gone through with the act. But we usually think the other way, right? With, with someone dying, we think, did they premeditate the murder? Or is it manslaughter? There's a distinction. There's a distinction in God's own word. The person who committed manslaughter in God's word doesn't necessarily get executed. He might get life imprisonment in the city of refuge. Which is basically a life sentence, right? Uh, you can escape to the city, and as long as you never leave it, you get to live the rest of your life incarcerated within this city, working, living a normal life, just not leaving the city. Uh, so there, there's a distinction between manslaughter and murder. But Christ is saying that premeditated part still counts, even if you never go through with it. And that's where, of course, we break the sixth commandment so readily. And that brings us to the other text I want to read here, and that's James chapter 3. James chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. There we read, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Think this is a parallel text? Do you think he's reflecting back on Genesis 9? He just listed all the same categories that God lists right after the flood that man is over. And James is saying, we've done it, guys. We really have succeeded in uh, doing this creation mandate, this, uh, this governance over the creatures that God gave us. He says, uh, every... Every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the image of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not to be. It's a a powerful, powerful parallel, isn't it? James, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is clearly reflecting on Genesis 9. But instead of talking about the murder of a person, he tells us we failed by murdering them with our tongue. And he even uses murder language. It's a deadly poison. And then he takes us to the same conclusion. For we go to church and sing hallelujah, thine the glory. 
We go to the church and sing holy, holy, holy. And then we go out and we speak evil against those made in the image of God. A very, very heavy load comes with this commandment when we realize that it is an attack on God himself. Remembering that human life is a mago day in the image of God is that which should transform how we think of each other. What we, how we guard our own hearts, how we guard our conversation. We, we, and here I mean we, not our culture. We, Christians in America, in this culture, rip people down with our conversation. We tear down our rather faulty politicians. We, uh, we, we laugh and make fun of them. We don't revere them for their position as the New Testament calls on us to do. We mock our neighbors. We attack each other. We gossip behind people's backs. We say all sorts of evil things against many people. And they're made in the image of God. The sixth commandment is not the easiest one to keep. It's only the easiest one to keep if we are not made in the image of God. Well, uh, a second point then, the first point being that murder is an assault on God himself. A second very short point, but I think very important, is that since murder is an attack, an assault on God himself, we must take life very seriously. So that, uh, this is what Heidelberg was getting at in that third question we read together a few moments ago. It's there in your bulletin. Is it enough to not murder? And we might add, is it enough for me to not murder or think evil things or... Uh, or sin against someone in my heart? Is that enough to just be neutral towards others? And if these people are made in the image of God, neutrality towards others is also not enough. Heidelberg's right there in calling on us to seek life. If humans are made in the image of God, it's not enough to just not be a negative part of the equation. We of necessity must seek life. We should seek eternal life, of course, first for them, seeking the conversion of the lost, because they are image bearers. But we also seek welfare in this life for our neighbors. In the Old Testament, there's abundant evidence of this in the Mosaic Law. Uh, Just two of them I was reflecting on this afternoon. Um, When you build a house and you have a flat roof on top, remember that God, God takes time to talk about how to build your house. God plays building inspector, and he tells you what you have to do with your roof. You got to put a fence up there. Why? Well, someone might go up there stargazing trip and fall and die. 
You need to care enough about life to go out of your way to guard against the one in a million possibility when you build your house. Another instance I, I was reflecting on, uh, if, if you took out a loan, you might, you might put your winter cloak as the down payment on the loan. And the Mosaic Law says if, if someone uh, gives you, you know, pawns their winter coat out to you, and you have hold of it, and it's, it's cold out, and they only have that one coat, then every night you give it back to them for the night. That that you you pawn they pawned it to you. It, it's your coat. They don't get that coat for three years or whatever the agreement was. But every night they get that coat. See see what God's doing. He's saying, while they're paying you back, they're not going to freeze to death in the street. A concern for life. Can you imagine pawn shops operating like that? Oh, we'll take this. Oh, but, but you get it back every night for this long. It, but God wants us to think that seriously about it, to care that much. And therefore, we, we do need to think about how we promote life. Now, we need to keep these things in a, in a biblical, uh, under a biblical priority. So one of the things that... Um, with some of the abortion discussions going on the past year, uh, that some some liberal, more liberal Christians were saying and emphasizing is, uh, some of you conservative Christians need to talk less about abortion because there are other issues of life that God cares about. Quality of life issues. So-and-so needs better insurance, maybe, or this other person... You know, needs a, a better uh, minimum wage or, you know, whatever the social justice things might be right now. And the argument seemed to be, stop talking about these these babies being murdered because God cares about all of life, including someone who's on minimum wage and can't pay their rent. And the problem with Christians, professing Christians, going down that path is they're forgetting biblical priorities still matter. And so the priority of an actual life versus quality of life. But we need to keep that balance. Death is still a worse thing than not getting to buy a new car this year. (laughs) That's just how it is. Death is still a worse thing than you're having to eat ground beef instead of steak. It's still, those things, the priority still needs to exist. But that being said, within that list of priorities, with life still first, then God seems to imply that then we start saying, well, what other areas can we assist life in a way that will promote its It's improvement. So the poor, the widows, they are to be cared for. Why? Well, they might not be dying tonight. But if no one cares for them, they might be dying down the road. That is a quality of life issue, isn't it? And so we are to care about those things. And so we need a balance. I don't think in Christianity in America right now, we have a good balance. We have people on one extreme wanting to get things in the wrong priorities. Social things first. 
And then we have sometimes an overreaction on conservative part of um, let the poor take care of themselves. And what we need is a, a priority, but still a concern. There are a lot of poor people in Greenfield who need a lot of help. There's only so much that people in this room can do about that. And we need realistic expectations for ourselves and, uh, and, for, and for our deacons. Uh, three deacons in this room. You've got to have realistic expectations or your church will be out of money in, in two minutes. Uh, that's just the reality. But nonetheless, thinking how can we promote and help and, uh, and work for the promotion of life. I, I think it is good that we, uh, at Christchurch, uh, we have done some work with, um, with uh, Alternatives Pregnancy Center. And I, I think that's a prioritizing, right? Uh, we could pour all that money that we poured into Alternatives last year into some other social program, but we're prioritizing life. But that doesn't mean those other things are irrelevant either. So, murder... Murder is serious because it is an assault on God himself. Secondly, we must take life seriously. And then third, the, the least popular part of any sermon on murder, probably. If, I, if what I haven't done already isn't popular, let's go down this path. The murder, therefore, because it's an attack on God himself, demands severe justice to uphold the value of life. Murder demands severe justice. I think the first year I was here, I, I, I don't know if it was in the series on judges or what, I think I must have made some comment on capital punishment because I remember I barely knew Bill and he came, took me aside afterwards and said, you may get someone calling you this week or whatever. Clearly there was someone in the church he thought was against capital punishment that thought no one ever contacted me. Maybe they just left the church. I, I don't know. But uh, not popular in our day and age, is it? To talk about capital punishment. But God has not been unclear here. If we, if we go back there to Genesis 9, God gives a command. Listen, Genesis 9... This is, this is a crazy thought. Genesis 9 comes before Exodus 20. That's how that works. Sometimes, and I've had discussions like this. I remember being at a bonfire uh, with some people, people I love from this congregation a couple of years back. And at the bonfire, it was cool because some young person brought up the question of capital punishment. And I thought, wow, this is a, this is a great conversation. Let's talk about the Bible and capital punishment. Uh, but what shocked me was other than myself around that fire of godly people, only one other person felt like it was absolutely not a question that capital punishment was right. That blew me away. Bob Taylor and I are the only ones who in this group who, who think that this isn't a confusing topic, what it comes down to so often for Christians. We look at it and say, well, what you read there in Genesis 9, that's Old Testament. That, that's for Israel. But it's not just for Israel. Genesis 9 comes before Exodus. 
Genesis 9 comes when God has just punished a wicked world of image bearers. And he takes all the remaining image bearers and he says to them, I hold you responsible for the death of an image bearer. From your hand shall be required an answer. Whoever sheds man's blood, God says, by man his blood shall be shed. That's a command. And it's a command not made through Moses to Old Testament Israel. It's made to the representative head of all humanity, Noah, at that time, in the context of a covenant that's made with creation itself, wherein God makes promises that will continue until he comes to judge the living and the dead. There could not be a context more powerful for saying that capital punishment is not an option, it's a requirement. And on the day of judgment, therefore, this should terrify us. On the day of judgment, many, many in our nation will be held responsible for not promoting capital punishment when they were in office. That's, that, that should be a frightening thing. Or if we don't care and shrug it off, that will be required of us an account. Praise God for the grace of Christ that will keep us from judgment on that day for the things we've thought in our hearts, said with our tongues, or the apathy we've had over the shedding of blood. Uh, but this is a command It's a command from God. Now, in the New Testament age, this is a command that is to be fulfilled not by you as an individual going out and being a vigilante. It's not to be fulfilled by uh, the church. Bill and I don't decide who on this block are to be punished and capitally punished. Uh, It is given to the sword. And of course, Romans, Paul takes time to discuss the the importance of the sword being given to the government to bring about good things. The protection of life. Um, in, In fact, not only for the forceful punishing of lawbreakers, but also the parrying of violence against the innocent. You know what that word parrying means? When you have a sword, you can thrust. You can also parry, right? You can, you can protect. The other person's swinging towards you. You block it. The government is given the sword not only to punish those who have done wrong, but to guard the innocent against attempted wrong and future wrong. That's a powerful and important thought. Well, I, I don't want to, I don't want to um, spend too much more time on this point. I have a ton of notes on this page, but I, I, think, I think we've seen what we need to there. The government is to exert eye for an eye when it comes to, to murder, the taking of life. And capital punishment, the eye for an eye in regards to life is to be acted, enacted in just and impartial judgment. That's why it's not my job to do it. 
I'm not impartial. If, if you attack my family, I'm not impartial, am I? But the judge is to be someone, if it's not a wicked judge, who is impartial. Looks at the facts. Asks if there's enough evidence. And then brings justice. Well, um, it's also important to note then, and I alluded to this a moment ago, that uh, God does acknowledge and distinguish murder from manslaughter. And so it's God himself who gives those cities of refuge. There's still, there's still a punishment if you're just not cautious enough about life. It still matters if you are flippant or lazy. If you have your axe and you don't bother checking that the head's on well and you swing it back and it flies off and it kills your neighbor, you still have to be incarcerated in the Old Testament. You'd be incarcerated for life in the city of refuge. But you're not executed unless you choose to be executed by leaving the city of refuge. And so we need to acknowledge that distinction as well. What's in the heart really does matter when it comes to this issue. Well, we need to have a gratitude that God, based on Jesus' standard of of us hating our brothers in our heart, uh, we all are guilty and deserving of his wrath and curse, both in this life and in that which is to come. And so we should have a great gratitude that God doesn't give us what we deserve. As with all the commandments, that we who are murderers in the heart, murderers from the beginning, hating from our earliest days, are given life, a life sentence, an eternal life sentence. It's a marvelous thing. And that should grant us a great deal of energy and excitement and desire to promote that kind of life. A high regard for preserving and blessing the lives of others and caring wisely for how we live and our, our lives here. They are not our own. They are not our own. Let us hold on to God's grace when our, when our government fails. This is an important thing. Because... Christ's standard of what we think in our heart can easily be thrown out the window when we're thinking about a government that we don't think is doing its job right. We, we need to remember this call for ourselves in how we think about our government and how we respond. Also, in having hope when our government is failing. Our government fails in a lot of ways. How discouraged might we be if we forget that justice will happen? Our confession of faith in Christ is not complete until we conclude as the Nicene Creed does. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And how does scripture end? Amen. So come quickly. Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you, you who are the giver of life, loved your people so much that you sent your son to give up his life for murderers like us, image breakers like us. Lord, we pray that that would grab hold of us at the very deepest level, that we would be people in response to the work of Christ who love life in the deepest possible way, who reverence and uh, reverence you by how we relate to each other. Father, forgive us for our, our thoughts and our words and our deeds against your image bearers and grant us grace to live in a way that adorns the gospel in the way of life. Father, we also do lift up to you alternatives. Pray that you would bless their continued work. We thank you, Father, for uh, the the result of uh, the Supreme Court decision this summer in our own country about abortion and the good things that have resulted from that. But Lord, we know There is still much evil here, and there are many dying near. And we pray, Father, for wisdom to honor you in this this world where death has entered. For we ask it for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.